Good morning. This morning we are continuing on in our teaching series that we've been engaging in here at Covenant uh, entitled Faithful Presence, where we're looking at the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. And uh, if you were here last week, uh, where we are in the story is that Daniel was elevated to be the chief advisor. He's a slave in Babylon, taken from his land of Judah in Israel, but he's taken to Babylon. He's, as a slave, he's made to work as an advisor to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And last week, what we read is that King Nebuchadnezzar starts having these horrible dreams, and he can't sleep. He's struggling with insomnia. And so he gets Daniel and all of his advisors around him, and he says, here's the deal, guys. If y'all are good at your job, you can tell me why I can't sleep and what's wrong. And if you're not good at your job, and you can't interpret these dreams, and you can't help me sleep, you're going to die, and I'm going to kill you. And all of them are going, we don't know what to do. Like, we, we can't interpret this dream. I mean, how, I don't have the wisdom to do that. These people don't have the wisdom to do it. Who can do this? And as we saw last week, then Daniel steps forward. Daniel steps forward and says to the king, none of the advisors can do this. And he says, and I can't do this. No human being has the wisdom to tell you what this dream means, to know that you're going to start sleeping again. But Daniel talks about what we call a leap of faith. He says that God has been a part of my life up till now, and what I can't do, I believe God is going to show up and provide, and so let me try. He interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, and the passage we're going to read today, starting in verse 46, is how Nebuchadnezzar responds. Does it go well, and do people live, or does the book end really quickly at this point? This is the question before us, Okay. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshipped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incenses be offered to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, no matter who we are today, we pray that you would speak to us about how we are to follow you with every part of our lives, and what that would look like for us to step out in faith and to seek to grow towards you today so that we might have joy and fulfillment every moment of our lives. We pray for this and trust in your leading and the guiding of your spirit to speak to us all. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So from an advisor's perspective, this goes well, right? But you can imagine being there in the room and like everybody's eyes are trained on the king. That's who we're paying attention to when this starts. That's who all the advisors that are there. Daniel's given this interpretation and everyone's kind of at this moment holding their collective breath and looking at Nebuchadnezzar like, is this going to go okay? Like, are we going to live or not? So all attention is focused on the king and his reaction. And so in a way, it's right that our attention should be there. So how do we think the king responds? Well, this is one of those things that I think if we're honest, there's like kind of both good and bad, and both of them are accurate. This is one of those times where it's like there's good parts to the king's response, and there's not so great parts to the king's response, and both of them are there. And that's what I want us to think about today, and how this bleeds into our life. 
What are the good parts of the king's response? Well, the good parts of the king's response is that for the first time in this brother's life, he acknowledges there is something larger in the world than him. That's a hugely significant thing, right? This, this, this king has been born to be a king, born to be an emperor. Never in his life has he ever had to kneel in front of anybody and say, there is something bigger than me in the world, something larger than I am in the world. And I acknowledge that in some ways. And friends, anytime someone does that and starts taking steps towards God, we should celebrate that completely. For me, as many of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. I still have like family and friends of mine from college that are like, what are you doing for a job? Like, why are you doing this? And when do you stop and get a real job? Like of what you're like not in the church, right? Like I just wasn't raised in any of this. And as many of you know, faith started becoming real to me after college when I was living in Japan teaching English over there and got involved in a house church run by Norwegian missionaries in Japan. And it was because that's what happens when you go to Japan is, is Norwegian missionaries and Jesus become a part of your life, right? That's what happens. And so that, that started happening in my life. And I can still remember at age 24, the first time that I thought there is a God there is a God in heaven who loves me. There is a God who is real that, that shows up in my life. And I want to, I think that that God has implications for how I live. I think that there's something bigger than me in the world. And that, 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 that thing that's bigger than me uh, ought to mold and shape the direction of my life. I never thought that before in 24 years. For 24 years, the way I made decisions is how many people in the world make decisions, which is what's going to make me happy? And if it's going to make me happy and, and it's legal, then I'm going to do it, right? Like the, because that's, that's okay. That's what we should do, right? Is if it's going to make you happy, do it. So that's how I decided where I was going to go to college, and that's how I decided what fraternity I wanted to be in, and that's how I decided you know, uh, what I wanted to do on summer vacations. That's how I thought about a job. What do I job I want to do that's going to make me happy? And so it was a hugely significant moment. The first time it started dawning on me of there might be something larger than me that, that, that has a say in how I live my life. That was a defining time for me in my existence. Now, could I articulate the doctrines of sanctification? No. Was it a hugely defining moment for me? Absolutely. Next Sunday in this service, we have over 20 students, high school students that are going to be confirmed, who have been through a, a lengthy confirmation process, and they are going to be standing before this service and professing their faith. It's an amazing thing to see over 20 teenagers doing that, four of whom are going to get baptized. We should celebrate that. That is a huge, huge thing for people to say, there is something larger than me in the world, and I want to follow it, and as best as I can understand that right now. That moment we celebrate without question, without qualification. That is countercultural in our world today that says just do what's gonna make you happy. It's about you being happy. So there's a level of Nebuchadnezzar's response that we can look at and be like, that's really amazing and that's a really great thing, and it is. But at a different level, there's also a part of this response that's like, I hope you don't stop there, right? I hope you keep growing in your faith. For example, he worships Daniel as his first response. He bows down in front of Daniel. And Daniel the whole time has been going, I'm not the one who's doing this. I can't make this happen. You shouldn't be paying attention to me in this. There's a God who's gonna work through me that's gonna make this happen. But Nebuchadnezzar bows in front of Daniel. We hope that that stops and changes, right? 
we hope that our Nebuchadnezzar starts articulating his own faith. Because what he does here is he starts just mimicking the things he's heard about God from Daniel. Right? He doesn't know how to talk about God. There's not this like ability to describe God. And so what he says is, is what Daniel said in previous verses. He's a revealer of mysteries. He does these things. He's kind of parroting back to Daniel what he's heard. Hopefully Nebuchadnezzar starts articulating, this is how I see God. This is how I relate to God. Right? We want him to grow in that. But lastly, and this is where I want us to spend some time today, all of us, every single one of us here, there's a sense about Nebuchadnezzar's faith that probably hits close to home if all of us are being honest this morning about moments in our own faith. And that is, is that what is exciting to Nebuchadnezzar about this God of Daniel who shows up is that God fixes Nebuchadnezzar's problems right? Nebuchadnezzar has this problem. No one can solve it. He can't solve it. His advisors can't solve it. God shows up and solves it. What a great God. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar looking at Daniel and going, next time I have a problem I can't solve, your God is the one that I'm calling in from the bench. Your God is the one that's going to come in and going to fix this thing again. What an amazing God. And then I can take him afterwards and put him back on a shelf and start living my life the way I wanted to live it anyway. But I'm telling you, next time I run into trouble, Daniel's God. That's the one that's going to come in and make everything all right again. Sort of like a cosmic Santa Claus, right? Just sort of shows up and we're like, here's what I want, here's what the kids want, here's what our neighbors need and everything else. And so we'd love for you to give us this in these places where we read them because these are very real needs. Kind of like an Aladdin genie in a bottle. Am I making enough analogies here? Uh, kind of like I have this with me and when I have a need or a wish, I sort of rub the lamp and you come out and I tell you what I want and you do it and then you go back. You go away again. Now, shape to serves next Saturday. I don't want you interfering with how I like spending my Saturday mornings. So don't come into that part. We had Pledge Sunday last week. I don't want you to tell me what to do with my money. I don't want you to tell me how marriage works and what it means to be a husband. I don't want you to tell me what it means to be a father because I think I've got that. Okay, when I don't have the perfect job, I'll pray for you to come in and fix the marriage at that moment. And then I'd like you to go back and then I'll tell you when I need you again. And I'll tell you what my needs are, and I'll tell you, because it's so great for you, God, how I want you to fix it. Does this, at any level, start sounding just a tiny bit familiar? It, I, I, it could be me. I, it does for me. It does for me, and the times that it most often becomes this is I realize that this is my default in life. My default is that when I put my faith on cruise control, this is what God always becomes, right? And it's especially as a pastor, because like, I'm doing the work of the church, and so it's busy with like godly stuff, and so therefore it's okay for me to put my faith on cruise control, because I am doing ministry, and you talk in that voice when you do ministry, because it is important, holy work that we do. And so it's okay for me to do that. And what happens over time, every time, is that I look at God going, hey, I'll reply to this email, and I'll lead the staff meeting, and I'll kind of get this thing done. But here are the three things I need from you. I'm delegating to you. If you could go take care of this, it would be wonderful if I didn't need to spend time on it. And then I'll reassign you again. This is all of us. This is our faith. This is what we default to every time when we're not being intentional. It's the faith of King Nebuchadnezzar. This faith is alive still today in our lives and in our hearts and in our world and in the church. 
A study was done a few years ago. Let me use this as an example. Studied by two sociologists named Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. They did a study of teenagers and young adults in the church who were raised in the church. Okay, So this is not the majority of teenagers who have nothing to do with church. This is about the teenagers raised in churches, and they did it across huge lines, Okay, lines that we normally keep separated. They looked at Catholic churches. They looked at Eastern Orthodox churches. They looked at mainline Protestant churches. They looked at mega churches. They looked at non-denominational churches. They looked at small churches. They looked at medium-sized churches. They looked at all kinds of churches. And what they found is is that in our culture today, um, teenagers and young adults, for the most part, follow a version of Christianity that is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar. They said that it is a kind of Christianity that is influenced by what they called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, most of you are much smarter than me, and so you just talk that way normally. I had to look those words up to understand what they mean. We're going to keep them up there for a second just so you can see. Moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? Well, the first word moralistic. What it means is, is that our young people have uh, articulated a faith where they're like, God's chief job is to give me morals and rules to follow. That's what God most wants. God has given me rules, and those rules are for me to follow, and God wants me to be a good person. Right? That's how my school works. The teacher has rules and the administration has rules. If I break those rules, it's trouble. If I follow the rules, I'm rewarded. That's how home works. We have rules around our house. And if we follow those rules, things go well. It's natural that God works this way, right? What does God want from me? He wants me to be a rule follower. He wants me to know the rules and follow the rules. And what's the most important rule? To be nice. Right? Because that's the most important thing. That's what makes Daniel influence King Nebuchadnezzar is he's just so nice all the time, Nebuchadnezzar lets him into the court. That's what makes Jesus die on a cross, his niceness, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, they had to get rid of him because he's just so darn nice all the time, we can't stand it anymore. That's what made Martin Luther King stand up for justice in this world in the call because he was just so nice and he wanted everyone to be nice too, Right? Niceness doesn't create any of that, but that's what we believe and what we have heard is that God most wants is to us to follow rules, so to be nice. Therapeutic, what does that mean? Well, therapeutic means that I don't pay God much attention in my life except when I'm not happy. And God's chief concern is me being happy. And so when I pray to God or pay attention to God is when things are hard or when I'm not happy, and I say to God, here's where I need you to show up to make me happy again. And that God is sitting there going, oh my gosh, how do we restore happiness here? That that's what just has God up at night all the time. How do, how do we restore happiness to Thomas, right? Now, do I pay attention to him when things are going well? Probably not. But I'll call on him again when I need to become happy. And last, deism. Deism is the idea that God's not close. God's far away in heaven just kind of looking down and watching us. And all religions are basically the same thing. And what do they teach us? They teach us to be nice. So as long as you're nice, and as long as I'm nice, and as long as everybody's nice, then God is happy with that and somehow rewards us even though he's a long way away. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, there are likely, and this is totally valid, some teenagers that might be sitting there right now going, dude, why are you bashing on us sitting here? And what I want you to know is that this is not about a generational thing. 
What this study went on to find and what other scholars like Ken DeCreasy Dean at Princeton Seminary found in this study is that the reason our teenagers and young people are being realized thinking that that's what Christianity is about is because it's what they're being taught by pastors, by churches, by youth leaders, by Sunday school teachers, by volunteers. God loves you, and when you have a problem, pray to Jesus, and he shows up and makes everything okay. That is King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a natural place for us to start. But friends, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal if that's where we find our faith? Why is it a big deal when my faith goes on cruise control and this is where I stay? Why is that a big deal where it shows up in your life? Historically, the reason that the church has said that this is a big deal is that the church has said it is bad doctrine. It's not good biblical understanding. You need to have better doctrine and understand it better. But the reason that it is a burden and ought to be a burden to each of us is if that is the extent of our faith, it is an amazingly small and unfulfilling way to go through life. Because it is still based on the idea that I am the center of things and that God and other people are just revolving around my orbit seeking to make me happy. And no matter what it is that you are looking for in life, if you remain the center of it all, you will always be longing for more. All of the time. You will either be pursuing what you think will make you happy or you will be disappointed when you achieve it. Those are the only two options in front of us. It is an unbelievably small way to go through life. And you won't find what you're looking for. Ravi Zacharias writes about the fact that the most disappointing time for most people is not when they don't get what they want, but when they get what they want and they realize it's not that great. When they get with it, and I am convinced in our culture, and this is definitely true for me, that so many of the reasons that people come to faith is not just when life is hard or is struggling and falls apart. It's when life is great and you look around going, yeah, it's okay. It's why we have quarter-life crises and midlife crises. It's why we struggle and over and over again is because we keep achieving and we keep going, what else is there? Because everything keeps revolving around me. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that. The faith of Daniel is not that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that God loves the world so much that he gave it a bunch of rules and hoped that people were nice. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something we celebrate and we sing about in songs like Amazing Grace. And what we don't sing in Amazing Grace is, Amazing Grace, how nice you are that you gave me rules so that I could be nice too. But the gospel is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's the understanding that God's love is not predicated on how many rules you follow or how good you are or what your needs are or how you grade out in comparison to your neighbor or the person working with you, that God is not interested in any of that. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God has come into this world and says and declared to all of us that we are declared righteous and loved and his beloved children before we ever follow a rule or before we break a rule, both of which we will all do this week. And it's not about grading out on a system. 
It's about understanding that we are declared righteous because God's love is that magnificent. And our lives aren't about following rules to follow rules. They are about a celebration of grace and declaring to the world where every aspect of the world says you have to earn what you get and say on the most important question of life, we can't earn it. It's been given to us already. At age 24, when I first heard that news, I looked at the person who was talking to me about Jesus, and I was like, oh, man, that is unbelievable. Tell me what I got to do about that. And he goes, like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, what do I do? Like, I mean, I, you need something done, I can do it. I mean, I got into a really good college, and I, I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do in my life, and I think I can achieve some stuff, and I, I'm a really good basketball player as long as I don't play with people that are really skilled, and I've got all these different things that I can accomplish, and I can bring a lot to the table. This is amazing news. Tell me what it is that I can do with my life. And he said, Thomas, if you take this question seriously of understanding how much God loves you, it will infiltrate every part of your being, but there's only one thing that you have to do about it. You have to celebrate it. You have to celebrate it. Because this love is so big that there is nothing you can do to add to it and there is nothing you can do to take away from it. Your life should be a celebration that declares in freedom, our God loves us so. The faith of Nebuchadnezzar is natural in all of us. Where is it in you? Where are those places in your life where you've reduced God to sort of a cosmic Santa Claus to just kick off the shelf and show up whenever you are ready for him to show up and to do what it is that you should? We all do it all the time. Where do you want more in your life? Where do you want to experience something more? And how do we continue to respond to the love that God has for us today by saying, what do you want from my marriage? What do you want from my life? What do you want from me as a parent? What do you want from me as a friend? Show me not how you can meet my needs, but show me how my life can be a reflection of your love and your intentions for this world. And if we do that, if we do that, that those are the moments that we come alive and we extend God's life beyond us to other people as well. What would that step look like for you this day. Because when we take it again and again and again, it will change us forever. That is good news. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would rescue us from a faith that is about us, a faith that is so small that we believe that you just show up to give us rules, to teach us how to be nice and to, to meet our needs, where we still insist on an existence where things revolve around us. Rescue us all from this kind of thinking that is in us, not because it's rule-breaking, but because it's too small. It's not a life of joy. It's not a life of purpose. It's not a life of fulfillment. Rescue us again from ourselves. And I pray that in every detail of our life where we see ourselves doing that, we will welcome you in to say, Lord, what do you want for this part of my life? What is your call upon this part of my life so that we might know the fullness of life? Help us to respond to your love, your amazing love, again and again and again, so that our hearts would burn with passion. We pray this and trust in this and believe this 
today and always. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing one last song.